Obviously, the people in uh, Dayton like to know secrets. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do today is uh, share some secrets about how uh, the NRO came to be formed and the association with the United States Air Force. Uh, I'll talk about that. And then uh, take a look at the uh, Gambit and Hexagon programs as a case study in the partnership between the Air Force and the National Reconnaissance Office. And uh, Dr. Outson uh, will do that. Uh, I have a couple of questions for the audience first. How many of you uh, have worked in uh, the Gambit and Hexagon programs? Anybody here? Great, great. Uh, and, and I would say to all of you, congratulations on a marvelous uh, set of programs that you were a part of and that made a very critical contribution to, uh, to national security. And as I think everybody in the room knows, uh, the work of your uh, fellow audience members uh, contributed to making the Cold War stay cold and for us winning the, the, the Cold War. So uh, really congratulations for the contributions that those of you had, have made. Uh, let me ask the, the rest of you, uh, before, before tonight, how many of you uh, were very familiar with the National Reconnaissance Office or the NRO? Ah, so you're into secrets uh, already, uh, because the NRO has been uh, a, a very, very um, secret organization until 1992, and, and I'll talk about that uh, in, in a few moments. Uh, but as Doug said, uh, this is really a very historic time since uh, January when this exhibit opened up with the Gambit and Hexagon artifacts. Uh, what you have here, uh, when this was opened on the 21st of, of January, actually is the largest collection, the largest assemblage of National Reconnaissance artifacts ever put together, declassified, and uh, made public. And you're a part of this historic first wave of people who are seeing these artifacts uh, in, in a public venue within a context of a marvelous uh, uh, story. Uh, and several of you uh, picked up copies of the compendium that Dr. Outson put together. And in that, you will find uh, formally classified uh, documents, but just recently declassified as a part of this, uh, this event. Uh, so you're looking at uh, top secret and secret material lined out uh, you've got the secrets uh, in, in your lap uh, in, in those books. Uh, but this is a very historic um, event here, and we're really pleased that the uh, museum has done such a marvelous job and very quick job of putting these artifacts on display. Uh, the exhibit was opened within six months of the director of the NRO declassifying the programs and declassifying the art artifacts. And that's probably a record uh, in, in this kind of a collection being put together uh, in an exhibit. So you have a marvelous opportunity here to get great insight into a lot of things that were very, very secret for a very long time. As I alluded to before, the National Reconnaissance Office uh, for its first 30 years was in the dark. It was hidden in the shadows. Uh, it was uh, often called the the Black Air Force, 
uh, versus the white Air Force that was that was in the open uh, in in the uh, sunlight. How many of you have heard about 4C1000? Ah, some of the veterans. Uh, that was the only way we referred to the National Reconnaissance Office before 1992. Uh, 4C1000 is the um, room number in the Pentagon where the director of the NRO had his office. The name NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, was so classified that even the stationery after the name National Reconnaissance Office had the, in brackets, secret uh, talent keyhole. We couldn't even say the name National Reconnaissance Office. We said, oh, I'm going over to uh, 4C1000, and we knew. Uh, we didn't talk about um, uh, satellite reconnaissance for a very long time. That was classified, the mere fact of. Uh, even within classified channels, we would typically say, oh, we're going to get some overhead with a kind of the wink of the eye. Uh, well, in 1992, things changed um, dramatically, and the darkness disappeared, and you suddenly had the National Reconnaissance Office. <laughs> come out of the dark and show itself as uh, the Black Air Force. Okay. <laughs> Your first secret. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Let me help you there. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I might as well uh, go all the way. <laughs> Notice the, the trouble with the intelligence community when you try to become uh, unclassified, there's always something dragging around, pulling you down. <laughs> Absolutely. Always strings attached. Uh, well, talking about strings attached, uh, the CIA and the Air Force were very closely entwined together. Um, somebody got it. Uh, actually, the first director of the National Reconnaissance Office were, were co-directors, one from the CIA and one from uh, the United States Air Force. Not one, one director, uh, Richard Bissell and uh, Undersecretary Charik were the, were the first co-directors. The um, Air Force served for a long time as kind of also a cover for the, for the NRO because it was buried in 4C-1000 in the uh, Secretary of the Air Force or the Undersecretary of the Air Force's office. But the relationship between the Air Force and the CIA organizationally extended in several dimensions. The first and foremost, of course, was in launch. The NRO satellites, the Air Force is the organization that launched those satellites. Uh, starting from the early corona, uh, and this is actually the last of the... Uh, launches that the NRO did during its 50th anniversary year. So for the entire life of the NRO, Air Force has been a very critical partner in getting the satellites where they belonged. Another area that the Air Force organizationally has partnered uh, with, the, um, with the NRO has been 
in the recovery of the film return systems. And Dr. Outson will talk uh, a little later about uh, how capsules of film were ejected from orbit and recovered by uh, airplanes run by the Air Force. Uh, and then the film shipped back to, um, to Rochester, to Eastman Kodak, uh, who did the initial processing. Eastman Kodak uh, made uh, duplicate negatives and duplicate positives. It shipped out the duplicate positives to the um, uh, various intelligence organizations that had to look at the imagery immediately, and generally that would be places like CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center, and then the um, rest of the film would go to another Air Force component at, at Westover Air Force Base. And that organization, which was the Air Force uh, Special Pro uh, Processing Facility, uh, made additional, from the uh, duplicate negative, made additional duplicate positives and shipped them out to the rest of the intelligence community and military community uh, to do additional uh, what was called second phase and third phase uh, exploitation. In other words, the scientific and technical intelligence community uh, would get their film from Westover Air Force Base. So this was an Air Force partnership, Air Force uh, uh, organization. Uh, this organization uh, not only processed the film, but they also looked at the quality of the film. Uh, they made sure that the film uh, met the proper standards and they, they identified the level of the, of the quality of the, of the film. Uh, very, very important for future, future mission plannings. Uh, another area that the Air Force played a key role was providing people and these people are not in uniform and I, I selected this picture in particular to, uh, to make a point. And, and that is that this is a reunion of the people in the Corona. Corona was the first photo satellite reconnaissance program, uh, which initially operated in 1960. And here in 2002, they're coming together uh, as a team. There was a lot of teamwork. And those of you who worked in these programs would probably agree with me that that, that, that uh, wherever you were working in the program, you were as a team collaboratively working, and it, it created bonds that extended beyond, uh, beyond the, uh, the tours of people. Uh, there are informal uh, uh, reunions that take place with alumni, not only from corporate, but also in the, in the military. Uh, Air Force components, uh, NRO components, CIA components, they, they, they just come together. Kodak people, Lockheed people, all of those who were involved, uh, they continue to come together. Uh, a very important theme in the way things happened in the early days of national reconnaissance. All right, how did the, um, the NRO come to be formed? Well, it actually started um, as a result of of two major successes that the Air Force and the CIA had. There was this um, uh, designer, Kelly Johnson, who was working at Lockheed, and many of you have heard the name Kelly, Kelly Johnson. Uh, he sent a proposal to the, the Pentagon, and um, it went to Undersecretary Charrick. He looked at it and uh, had a colleague over in the CIA, Richard Bissell, 
and uh, sent it over there. And they were pretty uh, interested in it. Uh, it somehow got over to the uh, White House advisors. Um, it got the attention of um, President Eisenhower. And the next thing you know, Eisenhower had approved a program that ended up in the, in the U-2. Um, and a lot of success in that. It was a partnership between the, the um, CIA uh, and, the, and the Air Force. That worked so well when the idea for moving forward with a satellite reconnaissance program, and there had been a series of studies uh, in, the, in the 40s and in the early 50s, uh, but it became urgent that um, these uh, airplanes, whether they were high altitude or whether they were the uh, RB-47s, were really at risk, and it was necessary to, to look for satellite reconnaissance and uh, the White House said, look, such a great success with the U-2. Let's put the Air Force and the uh, CIA uh, together uh, again, which, which they did. And uh, the rest of the story was the result of the uh, corona uh, that operated from 1960 to, to 1972, uh, which was instrumental in those of you who either remember your history or remember your uh, uh, newspaper reports, uh, in, the, um, in, in the early days of the Cold War, the Soviets had led many to believe that uh, they had uh, this tremendous missile capability that was going to threaten uh, the United States. We had been through World War II. We knew what the uh, atomic weapons were like. Uh, we knew their bombers had range uh, and certainly uh, their missiles uh, would have range into the United States. Um, so uh, missile gap. The corona said, no, the intelligence said there was not a missile gap. Debunk that. So um, great success with, with two programs. Uh, importance of satellite reconnaissance becoming more apparent. Uh, the next thing we know... Um, there's a decision to bring all of the nation's national reconnaissance, satellite reconnaissance activities together in one organization. Uh, since everything works so well with the, the NRO, with the CIA and, and the Air Force, uh, we ended up having an NRO formed uh, with agreement between the leadership at the CIA and the leadership uh, at, at the Pentagon. And the decision was made, let's create this, this office, the National Reconnaissance Office. But it was a streamlined office uh, in the beginning, small staff at the Pentagon, 4C-1000. And it became organized into uh, what we now call the alphabetic programs. And the Air Force took care of Program A. Uh, the CIA took care of Program B. Uh, there was a program C that the Navy took care of, and there was a program D that took care of the National Reconnaissance Airborne Assets, which were basically the, the U-2 and the A-12, also known uh, in another form as the SR-71. Uh, so you had these four programs. There were the autonomous program uh, directors, all kind of uh, working as a confederation, reporting to the director of the NRO, who was the um, 
generally the Undersecretary of the Air Force or the Secretary of the Air Force or an assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force over time. Uh, the way it was structured, the director of the NRO uh, was always a civilian appointed by the Secretary of Defense, and the deputy director was always uh, an intelligence officer uh, appointed by the director of central intelligence, now the director of, of national intelligence. So a, a, a partnership. But the NRO is a strange organization. It doesn't have anybody working for it. It doesn't have a personnel system. Uh, it really borrows from organizations. Uh, it, it has people detailed from the Air Force, from the CIA, from the Navy, uh, smaller numbers from, uh, from the Army. Uh, but uh, the people belong organizationally to their parent organization, but they work in the National Reconnaissance Office. People made a lot of sacrifices who, over the years, worked in, in the NRO. There were, uh, there were military officers who said it was more gratifying to work on a satellite reconnaissance program than to take all of the uh, assignments that I would need to get promoted to uh, colonel or, or, or general. I want to stay where I am. And so you had people from CIA and, and the Air Force essentially having a whole career in the, in the black Air Force, uh, working for 4C-1000 uh, and making, making marvelous contributions. Um, so as I said, uh, it was the U-2 program, uh, Kelly Johnson's idea. Uh, that's, of course, Gary Powers. The success uh, of the U-2, the success of, of Corona, that resulted in uh, the creation of, of this formerly secret uh, organization. And uh, now I'll turn it over to Dr. Ausen, who will uh, kind of give you a case study analysis of the Gambit and Hexagon, and you'll see a little bit more of how the CIA and the Air Force uh, kind of work together, and also you see about uh, how these these programs really had a significant impact on, on our national security. Um, and again, it's, it's great to have people in the audience who contributed to the, to the National Reconnaissance Program, and I would encourage you, to, uh, the others of you, to catch some of those people uh, at the end and, and see if they can share some stories with you. Well, uh, <clears throat> I'm not taking anything off. Let me just uh, <laughs> start by saying that, which is probably a good thing for us all. But uh, um, uh, Dr. McDonald and I have, were delighted when we received the invitation to uh, come out uh, here and uh, talk a little bit about uh, things that really haven't been discussed in the public previously, uh, important things, uh, national reconnaissance systems. And uh, I think it's been a privilege that we've enjoyed over the last uh, uh, two and a half years in working on the declassification of these systems. This evening, what I hope to be able to do is talk a little bit about uh, the Gambit and Hexagon systems and really the Air Force's involvement in uh, photo reconnaissance as a case study of how the Air Force uh, took a leadership role in developing capabilities that fundamentally changed the way that we understood the Cold War, understood the resources of the Soviet Union and other adversaries in the Cold War, and then had better direction on how to more effectively and efficiently 
use our resources. And I want to talk about three cha uh, challenges. One larger challenge, which was to develop very complicated systems, put them in the harsh environment of space to take pictures from uh, tens, of tens of thousands of feet above us. That's challenge one. How do you just make the systems work? Challenge two is how do you launch large objects into space reliably on a consistent basis? And then challenge three would be how do you get the images after you take them in space? So those are the three challenges I, I, I want to focus in terms of a case study of how the Air Force uh, rose to the occasion of meeting these challenges. And then finally, uh, I want to uh, just share with you some imagery that hasn't been released uh, in public previously for the most part uh, to talk about uh, the, the uh, contributions of these particular systems. Now, as a historian, uh, I have to start someplace uh, in a historical uh, story. And I want to start in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, really, that's where the Air Force's involvement traces back to. It was interesting walking around the museum today and seeing uh, uh, various uh, uh, displays of uh, General Hap Arnold and his, uh, his contributions to the United States Air Force. Um, probably one of the most significant contributions any individual made to the development of, of photo reconnaissance resulted in this 1946 report. We can trace the uh, genealogy, so to speak, of photo reconnaissance back to 1946 in the, in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, Rand Corporation, which uh, in that year was established by uh, the Douglas Aircraft uh, Company at the request of General Arnold to think about how to use new technology to fend off emerging adversaries a think tank, which was a concept that the British had developed uh, a few years earlier. Arnold believed that we needed to have a think tank to think about how to leverage emerging technology. Their very first report, the Rand Corporation, uh, is this report. Um, it's entitled, uh, Preliminary Design of an Experimental World Circling Spaceship. And it's really this report that we trace the history of satellite reconnaissance back to. The other element that I, I want to just quickly take you back in time to is uh, I think it was President Eisenhower uh, that described the attitude best in the, in the aftermath of World War II. No more Pearl Harbors. We didn't want surprises again. We, we, uh, we wanted to understand what our adversaries were doing. So two things came together, emerging technology and this concern that we defend the country from surprise attacks. What I've chosen to do tonight to, to uh, kind of illustrate this story, I'm going to show you this evening uh, images, photographs, graphics that we have never released to the public before. They've been recently declassified and in about two months we're going to publish these. But I thought tonight I would just use these images to tell this story about the Air Force's involvement. Uh, so let me start with the first uh, photo reconnaissance system that the Air Force was involved in. Eventually, it became known as SAMOS. Uh, its genealogy goes back to uh, really 1954 when the Rand Corporation followed up with, uh, with a preliminary report called Project Feedback, uh, which refined this concept of using an Earth-circling spaceship, which became known as a satellite, 
uh, to take pictures from space and understand what our adversaries were doing. Uh, the original uh, program was called uh, Weapon System 1117L, later renamed Sentry, and finally uh, named Samos in the, in the late 1950s. The concept here was let's take pictures from space, and there are two basic ways that we want to explore in trying to take the pictures. One would be, oops, go to the next one here. Um, yeah, it's, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going backwards. There we go. Um, one approach would be to actually take pictures on film in space and then do what the Air Force called at the time, read it out. Uh, there would be a system on space that would read uh, the exposed film and then send a signal back with the image on it. Uh, so a film readout system was the first option. The second option was a uh, film return system. This is the film readout uh, system, uh, the E2 camera system. Um, the other option was a, was a film return system where we, it's kind of like a big camera in space take pictures, put it on film, and then somehow get the film back to the Earth, develop the film, and understand what the pictures were. Uh, the program struggled in its early years, um, and there's good reason for this. It's brand new technology. Uh, the Air Force was doing something that nobody had attempted to do successfully before, and that was take pictures from space. Uh, and any time you try to develop new technology, there's lots of unknowns, there's lots of risk, there's lots of opportunity if you succeed in order to solve very challenging problems. Um, Dr. McDonald talked a, a little bit about uh, the next system, which is Corona. Uh, here are a couple of illustrations of the Corona system. Corona became the very first successful photo reconnaissance system and there are some reasons for why it worked. Um, it was a very small team of very dedicated individuals who brought great strength to solving this problem of how to take pictures from space. It took expertise from the Air Force and from the Central Intelligence Agency. It leveraged uh, opportunities to expedite development of the system. If the CIA had authorities and they have special authorities to procure things quickly and efficiently, they would use those authorities. If they needed a strength or a resource such as launch uh, from the Air Force, they would utilize those resources. And it became a real demonstration of cooperation in developing uh, a successful photo reconnaissance system. Uh, the system was designed really to last for two years uh, with the hope that uh, we would have successor systems in the Samos. This was a film return system, so the pictures were to be taken on, on orbit, deorbited, and developed back on Earth. The hope was that Samos would come online and carry out a film readout uh, uh, system, which would get uh, the pictures back more efficiently and, and more quickly. Well, uh, Samos ran into a lot of difficulties, and by 1963, Dr. Joseph Cherig, then director of the NRO, canceled the program. Um, there were very uh, multiple reasons for it uh, failing. Sometimes there were launch reasons, integration reasons, camera system reasons. But again, it was an emerging technology with a lot of, uh, a lot of risk. Corona itself faced very much a losing record 
in its first set of launches. Uh, of the first 13 attempts at launch, all 13 failed. Um, that we nowadays say, you know, we probably wouldn't make it past one or two launches. Uh, the world's changed quite a bit. But on the 14th launch, uh, which was actually labeled uh, Discover or Corona 13, there was one launch that failed so early it wasn't even numbered. Um, uh, so it's a little confusing sometimes. But on the 13th launch, we actually had a successful recovery of the Corona bucket. Now, the Air Force was very astute. I think another really important lesson learned here. Because there had been so many failures in a row, uh, there was a lot of pressure to cancel the program and redirect resources elsewhere to uh, solve this problem of photo reconnaissance. Uh, the Air Force, upon retrieving the bucket, as we called it, the film return vehicle, uh, immediately took it to Washington, D.C., uh, immediately went to the office of the president and gave the president at the time, it was just a, it was an experimental launch. Uh, somebody had actually put an American flag in it, didn't carry film or camera system, gave the president the, the, the flag that had gone into space. And uh, the president, uh, we have a very famous picture that uh, we've disseminated very widely that shows President Eisenhower with the bucket and with the flag. Now, why that's important is the president's now able to uh, reinforce his support, and Eisenhower's support was pivotal, uh, pivotal for continuing this program. So it gave him some cover to, con to uh, continue supporting the corona program. That's the early uh, involvement of the Air Force. I'm going to talk tonight a little bit more about Gambit and Hexagon, uh, because these are the most recently declassified systems. As uh, Dr. McDonald talked uh, mentioned we recently celebrated our 50th anniversary. Dr. McDonald was in charge of that, uh, of that commemoration and that celebration. And a major component of that was to declassify two photo reconnaissance systems that served the nation for nearly uh, a quarter century from, from start to finish. Um, the first is the Gambit system. This is an early graphic that was, uh, was developed uh, in the, in the mid-1980s by Kodak. Kodak developed the camera for the Gambit system. They had worked on the Samos system, had failed to develop a successful camera, but came back with Gambit. Gambit was developed to uh, meet this challenge of getting uh, photography from space. And its primary purpose was to take highly detailed images. Uh, we've declassified the fact that the, that the satellites uh, took uh, images that uh, had a resolution, as we say, of better than two feet. And what that means is from uh, 100 to 120 or sometimes 150 miles in outer space, we'll have a camera that will look down and it will be able to uh, see an object that is two feet uh, in size and we would be able to identify details of that particular object, or in the case of Gambit, better than two feet. Um, it's uh, really a, a, a very successful undertaking that occurs here. Um, this is the very first generation Gambit. Um, there were two primary generations. Uh, the first generation carried what was called the uh, KH-7 camera system. Uh, there were some very important uh, innovations that were included uh, in this particular camera system. 
The first is when we look at the camera itself, the focal length of the lens, you know, think sometimes about the, the, the t maybe the old 35 millimeter uh, uh, cameras that you carry around and you'd have like a telephoto lens that's yay long or whatever. So maybe six inches, eight inches, something like this. This carried a 77 inch long lens. So, you know, <laughs> we're talking two, two meters basically, a very, very long lens with an aperture and an opening of about 20 inches. So it's a huge lens to put into space. And how to figure that out and point it back down was a major innovation with the KH7. Um, there was another challenge that was met. Uh, I have this little film looper up here. Um, you think that isn't a very significant uh, development, but one of the primary reasons that Samos and even Corona had its early failures is uh, this problem of how do you put, put film into space, and space is a very cold, harsh, uninviting environment. How do you make film that is durable enough that it can re feed through this system very, very quickly, go through the camera, go into this recovery vehicle, and withstand the, uh, the, the stresses that are put on the film? Well, the film looper becomes a primary uh, innovation here that, that helps the system work. Um, we follow on here with uh, a second generation of Gambit, which was called Gambit Cubed early on. Um, it has some additional uh, uh, innovations that were included in it. Um, one of the primary innovations back here, I don't have an illustration of it uh, in, in this particular image, but it had a roll joint that allowed the entire front end of the camera uh, system to go back and forth in order to take high resolution imagery. Uh, you see an introduction in the KH8, it was called Block 2, the second set of KH8, of having two film return buckets. The purpose of having these buckets uh, in place, it's better to have two than one. You can carry twice as much film, twice as much time on orbit, and try twice the capability to understand what our adversaries are doing. And several other uh, innovations were included in the KH8 system. Uh, again, this is a recently declassified image. I, I put it up here. It, it's an interesting collage, but I wanted to just mention briefly what this represents to me. It looks busy and complicated, um, but when you think about it, it represents a successful partnership. There were multiple corporations that came together in order to make these systems work. Uh, Kodak developed, as I said earlier, the camera system. Uh, GE contributed the orbital control mechanisms and the film recovery bucket uh, for Gambit. We have uh, Martin Corporation providing uh, the boosters for part of the Gambit systems. Um, Lockheed is the integrator, the companies that, that's putting all of this together. TRW is working on software development. So when you sit back and you think about all of the players that are involved in this, and each of them working on a particular sub-challenge to developing a system that will work in space and having an Air Force staff that is capable of understanding the engineering challenges, giving the guidance direction, and hopefully understanding of how to make all this work using slide rulers, punch cards, hand-drawn uh, engineering designs, 
And as you encounter a failure on orbit hundreds of miles out or uh, over 100 miles out, these were real challenges and very uh, difficult times. I think the fact that it worked at all is a remarkable feat uh, to the credit of, of the Air Force. Um, just a couple other things I wanted to talk about. Um, I thought I'd share these pictures because what I think they represent here is a real new innovation. Uh, these high bays that were developed, as they were called, to stand up a satellite, uh, be able to integrate all the components together. Um, this represents the cutting edge of technology in 1960. And always behind the development of technology are people. There are people that sacrifice their time, their energy. Uh, time with family was probably the most significant sacrifice that, that you see in order to have what I think this picture represents, which is a breakthrough in new material sciences, engineering designs, uh, overcoming uh, environmental issues in space in order to make uh, reliable systems. Um, the next picture here I uh, wanted to share is just to talk about another issue here. You build a satellite in a facility. You don't launch from that facility. You have to move it. You have to get it out. They're big. Uh, when the rockets go off, people notice. Uh, it's a little hard to keep that secret. So how do you do that? How do you meet that challenge of putting into space one of our most important intelligence collection systems without people finding out? Well, this picture kind of represents that. Uh, we have up here a KH-8 where we're, uh, we're transporting it. In fact, if you go back into the... Uh, into the museum. If you haven't had a chance, when you look at the KH-8 display, the, there is a, a trolley there uh, that's very similar. But we would cover them. Uh, we would fly them out, uh, try to keep them disguised. Uh, obviously, once we got them onto the launch pad, people could see that we were launching things. But there were always cover stories uh, for what we were doing in space. And each of these systems had a particular cover story. Uh, I think one of the most interesting of all the cover stories that I've read about uh, or studied or seen documentation on is with the early Gambit system. And the, the genius idea of the Air Force program manager was to hide Gambit out in the open, all right, to make it so obvious that people would say they couldn't be doing it because they do it secretly. And uh, he called it uh, the Knoll approach that if there's a perception that nothing is there, that's the best cover of all. So the approach was basically this. Um, we'll make it look like it's a Samos uh, satellite, which large portions of that had been, uh, had been uh, discussed out in the open. We'll, do it, we'll purchase items along with the Samos program, but we won't call them Gambit. So the launch vehicles, the Agena control vehicle, the design of the camera system, all of those things were purchased in conjunction with an overt or open satellite system. Hiding the system out and open, this null approach to security, it was really a very remarkable approach. I share that with you because it really demonstrates the genius that goes into thinking about every single individual problem and challenge or sub-problem and challenge that comes along 
with meeting this large, larger challenge of putting a large system into space and making it work consistently and reliably. There were multiple great ideas that would converge in order to uh, make these systems successful. The next system I want to talk about in a little bit greater detail is hexagon. Um, where to begin with hexagon? Well, kind of at the beginning, I guess. Um, whereas Gambit was developed to uh, go down and look at an object uh, that's you know, relatively small or get, get down and gain details of relatively small objects, uh, hexagon was designed to really take the place of, of corona, in a sense, and of Gambit to a lesser extent. It was to be a hybrid system. And what I mean by take the place of Corona, Corona would take pictures of very broad areas. Um, and by having these very broad area images, American intelligence analysts were able to identify changes that had occurred in terms of additional missile silos, additional ships being built, uh, additional facilities in the Soviet Union. Uh, it was an incredible capability that came in, and as Bob in, indicated, the very first uh, intelligence issue it solved was this missile gap uh, concern. Hexagon was supposed to be developed to uh, do that more effectively, do it more consistently, do it for a longer period of time with more capacity. Uh, Gambit, on the other hand, again, was taking high resolution, and the hope was you could get a high resolution, broad area coverage and have the best of both worlds. Well, this was a concept that was not new uh, by the time Hexagon was under development. Um, the Air Force had tried a couple of approaches to make this work um, using Gambit in a slightly different way. The idea was maybe if you fly Gambit out at a, a, higher, uh, at a much higher or orbit, uh, a dual mode, mode Gambit, as it was known, that maybe that would solve the problem. It didn't prove as effective as we needed. Um, perhaps Corona's camera system could be improved. The Corona camera system had already gone through um, six different improvements by the time uh, it reached the end of its lifespan in 1972. So it seemed like we needed to have a new system. And Hexagon became the answer. But it came with controversy. Um, it originally was a CIA concept. And you look at the early history CIA was saying, no, no, we're not going to improve Corona. It's not going to work. Uh, we're not going to improve Gambit or fly it higher in a dual mode. That's not going to work. We need an entirely new, new system. Uh, we have, in this very dramatic period of time, the director of the National Reconnaissance Office at complete odds with the director of Central Intelligence over this particular program. Uh, my colleague at the CIA, the chief historian there, uh, has studied this issue very extensively. And uh, as we compared notes on uh, McCone, uh, who was the director at the, of the CIA at the time, uh, and look at the original documentation, there was intense uh, tension between him and, and McMillan, who was uh, director of the NRO. So this was a highly controversial uh, project for some really important reasons. Um, when you look at it, um, to try and get a, a sense of scale here, um, oops, go back here. Um, here we have the equipment, the little wheels down here, uh, individual, and then you look at this very large satellite that's being uh, developed here. 
Well, up to this point, we had launched much smaller satellites. So just getting the thing on orbit was a huge challenge. Uh, previously, the most uh, return buckets we had, I'll go to the next picture here because it gives a belly view of it. Instead of uh, two buckets, you have four. Corona carried about uh, 3,000 linear feet of film. The KH-8, a second generation gambit, carried just over 12,000 feet of linear feet of film. Hexagon was designed to carry 60 linear miles of film. All right. Uh, the original Corona was on orbit for about a day. Um, the KH-7 first-generation gambit system was on orbit usually about a week or so, sometimes a little bit longer. Um, the longest that the KH-8 system was on, on orbit was about half a year. The KH-9, or hexagon system as it was known, was on orbit for 270 days at its longest point because it had more capability. It was a more uh, dynamic system. So how did we get to this point of this uh, loggerheads of the CIA and Air Force to this beautiful gold-bucketed... To me, I mean, this is just a work of art. and to be able to come here and see it, I, I wish I lived closer, you know, just every day, maybe before work, come by and admire it. <laughs> so you are lucky people if you live here in the area, in my opinion. Uh, how did we get, get, how did the Air Force uh, work this out? Well, in good fashion, um, the country's interests were put before organizational concerns. Uh, over a period of time, there was an agreement that uh, Corona would need to, uh, would need to be replaced, and that the CIA and the Air Force would need to come together and uh, develop this system. They divided the work up, uh, CIA working primarily on the camera system, Air Force working on launch issues, integration issues, and other kinds of issues. And it became a highly successful program, uh, moved forward and contributed very significantly to helping the United States win the Cold War. Another little uh, uh, feature of the KH-9 or the hexagon system is this mapping camera. And you have this camera in your museum. Um, This is it. The mapping camera, it's important because it allowed the United States to gain uh, imagery that could be used for making maps. And maps were important for war planning and understanding how to, to, uh, once if we had a war, the lay of the land and how to deploy resources and order of battle issues, what our uh, adversaries were likely to do. So it was very important in, in that sense. Uh, it gave us geodetic uh, ge- information, uh, point locations for the first time. We're also used to GPS and Google, uh, Google Maps or Yahoo Maps or even just maps you get in your mapping book nowadays. Um, Back in the 1960s and 70s, having that level of detail just didn't exist. Um, But probably as important as anything else, it was an innovation that could be incorporated and could piggyback on this highly successful system and demonstrate flexibility in solving a range of problems to more efficiently and effectively use the significant dollars that were being invested in these particular systems. 
I'm going to just kind of wrap up here, spend less time talking about launch uh, and then film recovery. I'll talk a little bit about that uh, because I think they're uh, interesting for a couple of just really important reasons. Let me, again, try and set the stage uh, for the environment that existed when we were solving these problems. Um, this is a new graphic that, well, it's an old graphic that we're releasing for the first time, and I love it because it tells a, a great story, a nice progression here of launch capability over time. Um, how many of you uh, remember the Sputnik launch? All right, a good portion of you. Could I just have one of you tell me what you remember about it? A volunteer. Okay, a first launch. Laying on a hillside on our farm, watching that little All right. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, I'll use the laser pointer here. Yeah, everybody's looking at it and they're thinking, what? The Soviets have made it to space for the first time. And did you see us as winning or losing at that point out there? Uh, there was a real concern that, yeah, we were losing the, uh, the, the race to space, a very legitimate concern. And I think that was the public concern. Inside government, the concern was even more compelling, I think the historical record demonstrates. And that's if the Soviets were the first to get to space and they have nuclear weapons, they're probably going to be the first to get a nuclear weapon to the United States. This became really, I think, at least within government circles, the single most compelling reason for having these systems that we just talked about, starting with Samos, Corona, the Gambit systems, and Hexagon, was to understand what the Soviets were capable of doing. So you see this nice progression of launch that occurs. And then I think with that understanding, um, the vehicles themselves just serve as a great example of how the progression unfolds. Samos being uh, launched on an Atlas, a Gina combination. Corona on a Thor, a Gina combination. But you actually have that combination here in the museum as well. Um, we, uh, I inadvertently uh, didn't put in the Atlas, a Gina for the KH-7. I, I just have KH-8 launches here on the, uh, on the Titan uh, 3Bs. Um, but Again, these phenomenal developments in launch. And then finally, Hexagon on the, uh, on the Titan uh, 3, 3D system. Uh, getting closer to what we now call heavy launch, where there are solid uh, fuel uh, boosters that are placed on the rocket so that we're finally able to put large objects into space. It's a huge challenge. Uh, those of you that remember Sputnik probably remember watching our launches explode on the launch pad, right? And waiting for one to finally be successful. It took until 1958 before that occurred, but there was that early concern that you see failure after failure after failure. Well, again, the Air Force was primarily responsible for this, uh, if I go back a little bit, this remarkable progression that occurs here from the early systems up to this conceptual system beyond the Saturn launch. I just thought that was a nice graphic and these are good pictures to illustrate that success. The final challenge I want to talk about briefly tonight is uh, 
film recovery challenge. And I'll make it very brief. Um, if you get film into space, you know, it's easy to get your film out of your camera and take it and get it developed back to when we used to do that. We don't even do that anymore. But it's very difficult to take pictures, get it from space, and develop it back in uh, on the Earth. It was a very significant accomplishment, again, that occurred here. Uh, basically, for all of the film return systems, they, they essentially had the same approach. Uh, there was always a film return uh, vehicle uh, in all of the systems, usually, or uh, at least through KH-8 developed by GE. Uh, that bucket would uh, detach. Uh, it would spin up. There would be a mechanism, a, a retro rocket fire to bring it back down. It would de-spin. There would be an emitter that would come out, eventually a parachute, which would fully deploy the little, uh, or the large heat shield would, would come off. Uh, we would then have a main chute deployment. At the same time as this uh, was all occurring, this emitter would go back to a, a plane. I, this graphic doesn't represent it, which would identify roughly where the, where the bucket was going to come down. And then in a grid pattern, there were several air recovery crews that were looking for it. And if it fell in the grid, the air recovery crew would come by. They used these little hooks on the end of, uh, of wires here. Um, I thought about bringing the hook, but I was afraid the security people at the airport would <laughs> not like it. Uh, usually when I do these presentations, I bring it. It's about that long. It has uh, four prongs on it. It's just a little small hook like that. There were two of them hanging out the end of an airplane to capture the parachute. And that was, uh, that's how the system worked. Uh, it was designed to have two passes. So if you didn't catch it on the first pass, you could come back and try it again. Let's just say that there were some third pass catches by the Air Force when necessary. Not often, but again, they rise to the occasion. Uh, again, it's people. I put this picture in. This is a picture of the, of the test squadron in Hawaii that was responsible for the mid-air retrievals. Um, they have a successful retrieval here, very symbolic. Um, to them, a, a very significant accomplishment. In fact, it was so significant. Does anybody remember the tour after the first uh, discoverer, as it was called, the overt name uh, of these gentlemen going through the United States, appearing on uh, like the Tonight Show and things like that? Anybody ever see that? Well, it became a very popular tour for the recovery crews that did this successfully. Uh, here's a uh, early bucket. Uh, this is the number 12 launch for. Uh, discover Again, it wasn't successfully recovered, but here is the first bucket that's retrieved, which is the 13th uh, numbered uh, bucket that, that comes back. Just a couple things to recognize here. Like everything else, there's an evolution that occurs. Uh, out in the front of the museum is a, is a uh, C-119. Uh, it is the first plane to capture an object that returned from space midair. The interesting thing about it is the Air Force and the people that were carrying out the operation didn't even know they had caught the bucket until they would actually caught it, reeled it in. And the reason was they weren't supposed to have the bucket in their, their zone that they were responsible for. So they had to maintain radio silence while this other crew was going off and looking for the bucket. So they catch it, they reel it in, 
And finally they say, hey, we got it. You know, there's really no reason anymore to uh, have the other crew out looking. Um, they went from that level of, of working out difficulties and challenges to the end of the uh, programs. It was rare, very rare, that the Air Force crews missed a bucket. Um, they practiced a lot, and they became very, very uh, successful in carrying those out. Um, again, just a, a, another perspective. You can see the, the wires, and just very, very difficult. Uh, if you caught the parachute too low, it would pull the plane down, and that happened once. Um, and uh, the crew had to actually, they had a, a strong cutter mechanism that would cut through the cable to pull it in. You don't want to be flying in a plane and having a large parachute out the back end of it. Um, so there were challenges like that that were overcome. But here are the uh, individuals. I put this one up because you can see they're looking out the back of, a, of an airplane, holding onto a, a cable here that's going to catch that parachute there in the background. Um, I think this symbolizes the risks that individuals took in order to make this system work, probably as best as any picture I've run across in doing my research. And then finally, you know, sweet success here, to be able to look out the back of the airplane and, and this is what, you, what it was all about, to be able to pull this in, get the film to where it needs to be, and get it developed. Uh, just another shot, uh, again, with the trailing. Another sign of success here. You can see they were able to collapse the parachute rather than, than uh, capturing it too, too high or too low. And then finally, like everything else, um, bigger is always better. And this is a hexagon capture. Um, you can see it's a bigger parachute and a larger uh, film return bucket there. Uh, and an entirely new aircraft, a C-130, which you have two of, from what I understand here in the museum. Finally tonight, I want to talk about the contributions of the systems. Um, this is a, a picture of a Soviet airfield taken by Corona, Dolan Airfield. Um, Corona helped solve this problem, this question of what were the strategic nuclear capabilities when it came to ICBM develop, development of the Soviet Union. It put that question to rest, and, to rest, and it was an important one because by having a clearer understanding of what Soviet capabilities looked like, that meant we could invest money in things like Gambit and Hexagon to get even better information to solve tough intelligence problems. We had a sense of what was occurring on the ground when it came to uh, nuclear uh, weapons and uh, air, air capabilities. And I put this up, it symbolizes, I think, the strategic bombing capabilities, strategic bombers. This is an image uh, from... Uh, KH-7, first-generation gambit, of a Chinese uh, nuclear test facility. And uh, again, it was about understanding the nuclear threat. What were our adversaries in the Soviet Union, China, and Associated States up to? How much progress were they making? Uh, what did their test results look like when they, uh, when they uh, put a nuclear test in place? KH-7 really helped us uh, solve those, uh, those questions. I put this one up. Uh, we have only uh, eight KH-8 images that we released, and that may be all we released for a while because of the resolution of the system. Uh, it's a phenomenal system. But I put this up because it helped us understand uh, not only sea-based 
deployments, but more importantly, a broader base of how do you develop weapon systems, uh, different platforms for waging the Cold War. That's a fundamental question that it answered. And in conclusion, I wanted to use hexagon imagery tonight to really kind of talk about today. Um, my point here is this. If it took us 12 years to develop these kind of capabilities from the first successful uh, Corona launch to the first successful hexagon launch, we've been using imagery now for uh, over 50 years. Uh, we have phenomenal capabilities today. And they help us with uh, not only uh, military and intelligence kinds of issues, but I put this mapping camera image up because I think it helps you think about environmental issues or perhaps humanitarian issues or human rights issues. Those are the kinds of things, in addition to uh, national security issues, that the systems help us with today. And then finally, um, probably for me a little bit of a, an emotional image here. Um, this was taken years ago, the, the Twin Towers. But from the panoramics camera on the, on the KH-9. But I think it symbolizes a devotion and a dedication over years, which have evolved into current capabilities that help us fight the battles of today. Uh, we use these systems for terrorism. We use these systems uh, to deal with the multiple threats that, emerging, that are emerging from non-state actors and, and those that would uh, do us harm. And it's because of people that served in the United States Air Force and in the Central Intelligence Agency in General Electric Corporation and Kodak, uh, Perkin Elmer, who developed the, uh, and ITEC developed the uh, hexagon camera system, Lockheed, Martin, Lockheed Martin when they combined, um, sacrifices were made, brain power was brought to bear, and I think the characteristics of human ingenuity, devotion, dedication, and loyalty are really represented by these systems. So my hope in talking to you tonight was, again, to use some recently declassified images to help you understand a little bit more about the systems, but more than anything else, how the Air Force, in partnership with other individuals, was able to rise and meet an important challenge in establishing a fundamental capability for winning the Cold War and establishing a, a, a fundamental uh, foundation for meeting the intelligence and security challenges of today. So thank you for your, uh, for your attention. <laughs> <laughs>